Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Well, when you came in this morning, you may have noticed that the lobby looks a little different. May not have, but before we had a rendering of our campus and what it might look like kind of on this wall over here, we had kind of designed that prior to the expansion of Carolina Forest Boulevard. When we got into our For the Kingdom campaign, we kind of refined and touched up sort of our plan and vision for our campus. So we redid that rendering and moved it to this wall in a really fun game of musical walls. So now if you're looking for the rendering, it's not here, it's here. And if you want to see as we are moving into the future and preparing for what God is doing in our community, in, in our church family, if you want to see what that kind of vision looks like and where we're trying to go, you can, find that in, you can find that kind of on this wall out here. There's a picture of the buildings and how we kind of picture at this point our property looking when the For the Kingdom campaign is done. It also has little write-ups for each of the different areas and what each of those buildings would be used for and the ministries that it would house. So with that, I want to give you a quick update. We launched our Kingdom campaign about two and a half months ago. I want to give you kind of a, a state of where we are. Since then, we've had over $550,000 committed no, that's <laughs> and over $100,000 given to the campaign. So that is incredible. Uh, something we're really excited about, what that has allowed us to do. And for some of you, this is going to be really exciting. For others of you, you're going to be like, Whew. but one of the things that this has allowed us to do is we just got the letter this week that we've now the initial investment that we had on our property for the, everything that currently exists is now under a million dollars. Which, <laughs> so you're the guys that are excited about it. <laughs> For those of you who are not, because our first step in this has always been we need to pay off the debt that we have before we develop the next piece. For those of you who are not as excited about that because it doesn't sound as cool as we're going to build a new building, I get it, that sounds way cooler. Let me tell you why I'm excited about that real quick and maybe it'll mean a little bit more to you. It's a simple equation. Less debt equals more ministry. Okay. When we have less that goes into a mortgage payment, to something that we have to pay in order to function and operate, that means we have more to directly work into the community around us. And so that is hugely exciting. It is a great big milestone. We're very excited about it. Um, if you were not here for the launch of it, you'd like to join us in the Kingdom campaign. Uh, there are commitment cards and information guides in the seats in front of you. Please feel free to take those with you. Pray over them. I have one caveat for that. Please feel absolutely no obligation to do so. I don't want a single penny that comes into this campaign to be given out of compulsion, guilt, or obligation. This is not a, hey, give us your money thing. This is an opportunity that we believe what God is doing in the future to be able to minister and serve our community to carry out this desire that I have for us to reach one more. See, I want, to be, I want us to be a church that we're never truly satisfied with what we have, but that we have this sort of holy discontentment that doesn't allow us to be complacent or comfortable, but that we would always be seeking one more, that we might love one more, serve one more, grow one more, and see one more life transformed by the gospel of Jesus through the power of the Spirit of God. Amen. And what we're looking to do with this is not build a cooler campus. 
It's create different opportunities to reach people where they are and minister to and love our community for people who may not be yet ready to walk through the doors of a church. So if you'd like to join us with that, we would invite you to do so. But if you've been here for more than a week, you know we don't pass offering plates. We don't talk about it on a regular basis because we don't want to ever come across like all we care about is money. It's not. But if what you could do for us is just your name, credit card number, social security, <laughs> date of birth, and the name of your first pet, if you could just email that to me, we'll get started. This will go great. All right? I feel like I explicitly need to say that that's a joke. Okay, because I have times where I say something in a sermon, I'm like, this is definitely a joke, and everyone will know, and then people come to me afterwards, like, I can't believe you said that, I'm like, bro, that was a joke, really thought that was clear, so let me just be, for the sake of not getting in too much trouble, that's a joke, please don't send that information to anybody, that's your information, keep it. We've had this idea for what God could do with this campus, this vision that God had laid on our heart for a while, and for a time, we sat on it. Because it's big, and it's audacious, and the idea, the idea of trying to take this vision and make it a reality on the 25 acres that we have in the fastest growing community in America is scary. Like, what if it doesn't work? What if people don't get behind it? What if... Ever notice how powerful fear can be in your life? How it can change your thinking, your behavior, how you would normally act in a situation? Fear is part of the reason we have the book of Hebrews. See, the audience at this time, they were afraid because they were struggling. They were suffering because of their relationship with Jesus. They'd been disowned by their families, kicked out of their communities. The government had seized their land and property because they followed Jesus. They'd been beaten. They'd been arrested. And the, it was escalating. The persecution against the church was getting worse. And they could see the next step in that escalation is death. And so this group of Christians, they're afraid because following Jesus might cost them their life and they feel they're scared and they feel alone and they thought that Jesus was going to make things better but they keep getting worse and so now they're starting to wonder if maybe Jesus has abandoned them. And they're questioning what to do because they know that there's a very real possibility that if they stick with Jesus, they might die. See, fear and the fear of death has always been one of the greatest and most universal fears in the heart of man. It's a subject that's so heavy that we don't even like to talk about it. We don't want to discuss it. It makes us uncomfortable. It's this sort of taboo thing. Some of you are sitting there like, okay, you said death like three times. Please shut up. It'll get better, but it's going to get so much worse first. We don't like to think about death, talk about death, sit with the idea of death, which is it's honestly, if you think about it, it's really strange. Because the most certain thing that we have in this life is death. Right? It's the one thing that every person that's ever walked this earth has in common. Right? We're all going to die. I'm not trying to be morbid about that, but death is this inescapable, unavoidable, universal reality of life that hangs over us like a dark cloud. And we can fear it, and we can run from it, and we can hide from it. We can try not to talk about it, but for, despite all that effort, I don't know if you know this or not, but the death rate in America is running right around 100%. <laughs> the simple reality of life is that one day you and I are going to die. And the sad truth is that being direct 
in discussing the subject of death can seem harsh and insensitive because of the unhealthy stigma that we have built around it. But here's the thing. Not talking about death doesn't prevent it from coming. It just prevents us from being prepared to deal with it. So we're studying through the book of Hebrews in a series called Jesus is Greater. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app, we are going to be in Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 14. But before we get into that, we have to rewind a little bit to look at the last little section that Pastor Rick talked about last week. Why would we ever do that? Because our text begins with two words, since, therefore. All right, so when you're reading the Bible and you encounter this word, therefore, what that tells you is that in order to understand what's about to be said, you need to understand what has just been said. So when you see a therefore in the Bible, don't read forward, first read back. And please, please, for the love of my sanity, don't grab me after service and tell me, when you see therefore, you got to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Okay? I, please, let's just not say we didn't. Okay? I, I don't know how to fake laugh at that joke anymore. All right, I've given it all that I can give it. It's cute, but please just don't. So what we're going to do, we're going to hop back to verse 10 so that we can understand what we're about to read for our text this morning. Verse 10 says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in the bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children that God has given to me. Four verses. Three Old Testament references that have two things in common. First, the Jews believed that these verses were all messianic. That means they dealt with or they were about the Messiah, who he would be, what he would be like. And second, all three of these verses are connected to suffering. And so the first, the most notable of them that we're going to focus on is the first quote he makes is a part of Psalm 22, which begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, I cry out by day, and you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. This is the psalm that Jesus quotes on the cross. Can you think of a more relatable passage in Scripture than this? Like, is there anybody that hasn't ever felt this way? Like when the pain and the struggles and the hardships of life come around, you're like, God, where are you? What are you doing? I'm trying to follow you. I'm trying to honor you and live for you. It's just really hard. What are you doing? Where are you right now? Has anybody ever felt that? Suffering is designed to make us feel isolated, abandoned, and alone. And what the author is telling his audience here in these quotations is that Jesus gets it. He understands how you feel because he's felt that he understands your pain because he's felt that he understands the hardships and the struggles that you endure because he has felt it. Jesus gets it. And the suffering that we experience bonds us to him so intimately that Jesus uses familial language to describe us. 
the creator and sustainer of the universe, calls us his brothers and sisters. And when you belong to Jesus, what he's telling his audience, what he's telling us, is that when you belong to Jesus, Jesus is proud to call you his family. Can you imagine? The creator who forms you and gives you breath, being proud to be related to you. And that sets up verse 14. Since therefore... The children share in the flesh and the blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. The fear of death is a powerful force. It affects everyone because of the impact it has on our lives. It is this great consuming fear. See, the fear of death, it desires to consume you, to control you, and to enslave you. And it is so effective, not just because of what death is, but because of what death brings with it. That is pain, loss, separation, punishment, and the fear of the unknown. Death is a problem. And it's a problem that we all have to face. See, Romans 3 says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6 says the wage of sin is death. A wage is something that you earn or something you deserve. And so what we see in the book of Romans is everybody sins, and because of that sin, everybody deserves death and punishment. That's heavy. But Jesus takes on flesh so that he can take on death on our behalf. Jesus lives and dies so that through his death and resurrection, we could be freed from the power of death. What that means for us is that you are no longer a slave to death. You are no longer a slave to the fear of death because they have no hold over you any longer. And so the world around us might fear it. The world around us might run and hide from it. But for us, it has no power because Jesus has broken those chains and he has set us free from it. And so in the heart of the Christian, there is no place for the fear of death because that fear has been replaced with 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For the power of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus destroys the power that the devil has over you. He destroys death. He overcomes the grave so that you can be free, so that you are free from the fear of death and all that comes with it. Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Let's hold on there. The importance, the significance of this. What this means is that Jesus didn't just look human. He didn't just act human. He wasn't simulating humanity, but that he was made like us in every respect. In the first century, there was this heresy that said that Jesus was a man 
and that he wasn't actually God, but rather that the Spirit of God kind of hovered around him or straight up just possessed the guy. And that's why he could do all the things that he did and say all the things he did, that Jesus was actually himself a man. And then he just had the, the God Spirit sort of like, you know, pulling his strings like a little puppeteer. No. Since Jesus was made like us in every way, his experience of humanity was just like ours. He grew and developed body and mind the exact same way that we do. That means when Jesus was a baby, he was not goo-goo-ga-ga-ing the mysteries of the universe. Okay? When he went through his teenage years, he felt all those weird angsty emotions that teenagers feel. He understands our feelings because he felt them. The struggles, the pain, the hardship, Jesus had a full-on human experience in every possible way. He was made like us. To which you say, yeah, but pastor, he's also fully God. Yes, thank you for bringing that up. Okay, so here's the trick. In our finite minds, we cannot comprehend how one thing can be perfectly and completely two things at the same time. It doesn't register. So inevitably what happens is we take Jesus being fully God and Jesus being fully man, and one will override the other in practical application. Well, Jesus did this. Yeah, he was a man, but he was, he's also fully God, so that doesn't count. I can't do that, you know, because as God, Jesus has access to the full knowledge and power of God. But as God, Jesus chose to self-limit what that means is that while Jesus was man, he did not control his access to that knowledge or to that power. Could he access them? Yes, he did not. He knew what God wanted him to know when God revealed it to him. He did what God empowered him to do when God empowered him to do it. Which is why Jesus says the Son can do only what he sees the Father doing. He self limited that he could be like us in every way and experience life like us in every way. To which our first question ought to be, why on earth would the creator of the universe do that? I'm glad you asked. Here's your answer. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. This is a really important thing to understand because this is one of two areas that sets Christianity apart from every other world religion. So you know, I'm only going to tell you one. I'm not forgetting the other. I'm just not telling it to you today because I'm mean. All world religions are built to address the same issue. That there's a divide that exists between this higher power, higher plane of existence, higher being that we'll call God. So we have God who lives on the top of this mountain and man who lives at the bottom of the mountain and there's this mountain divide that exists between them. All religions are addressing and recognizing that problem. And what every world religion does is it offers a route to climb up the mountain. Do these things, believe these things, follow this code, behave this way, these are your ethics, this is all this, and if you do this well enough and you follow it long enough, you can reach the top of the mountain and get to God. And then you get this idea called universalism, which is all roads lead to God if you climb the mountain. It doesn't matter which route you take so long as you climb the mountain. It's utter nonsense. It's super popular, but it's utter nonsense. What sets Christianity apart from all of the other world religions is that all religions are about man reaching up to God. Christianity is the only one that says 
It's about God reaching down to man. That God doesn't sit on top of the mountain waiting for us to climb to him, but that rather God comes down the mountain to us and makes himself like us so that he can be a faithful and merciful high priest. Now, that word merciful, really important. It's really easy to misunderstand and misrepresent what that is. So understand merciful. We can look at James 2, right? James 2, he says, if you say to your brother, go, be warm and well fed, but do nothing to meet his need, what good is it? He's describing mercy. Think of it like this. Imagine that you've lost your job, lost your house, lost everything. You got no credit card, you got no money, no means to make it, and you're starving. And two people come up to you, right? Person A sees you in this situation, and they just start to weep, and their heart is broken, and oh my goodness, I can't believe what you're going through. I just, I'm wrecked about this, and I'm going to pray for you, and I just want you to know that I hope this gets better, and it gets fixed, and everything gets better for you, because this is just breaking my little heart. That's person A, okay? Person B looks at you and went, well, you lost your job probably because you're an idiot and this you deserve, so suck it up and deal with this. not my fault. It's your problem and I don't care, okay? So person B we don't really like. Person A we feel good about, right? You know the practical difference between these two people? Nothing. You know why? You're still hungry. Neither of those are mercy. Mercy is not sympathy. It's not just caring that another person is hurting. That's important. I'm not negating the importance of sympathy. I'm saying practically, caring but not acting is no different than not caring. Mercy is person three who says, you're hungry. Let's go get some groceries. We'll fill up your pantry. I'm going to get you a burger. We'll go eat. Mercy is to act in order to alleviate the pain or struggle of another person. And the comfort that we have in Jesus is not just that Jesus doesn't just know and understand. It's that Jesus is merciful towards us. He's not sitting in heaven going, man, that, your situation, that's just, that's horrible. And my heart breaks for you. I hope you figure it out. The comfort that we have in the storms and struggles of life is that the creator of the universe doesn't just care, but that he is merciful towards us. That he is acting on our behalf, working on our behalf, mediating on our behalf. So when we go through struggles, when we go through pain and hardship, we know no matter how bad it gets, help is on the way. Because Jesus is a merciful high priest. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. All right, what I want you to do, if you've got a pen, I want you to circle, underline that word propitiation. If you've got a highlighter, I want you to highlight that in your Bible. Yes, you're allowed to do that. It is not a sacrilege. If you are looking at a translation that does not use the word propitiation, it's time to get a new translation. It sounds like I'm being dramatic. I'm not. Get rid of it. There are times when reading the Bible that the general idea is good enough. There are times in which a, a broad understanding is good enough, and there are times in which the technical thing is so incredibly important that you can't afford for it to be wrong because it shapes how you view an entire issue. This is one of those times. This is one of those words. 
because this is how we understand the gospel. What we hope for, believe in, the source and purpose of our salvation, the entirety of our recognition of what the gospel is, is influenced by our understanding of this word to propitiate. Propitiation literally means to put away or to turn away wrath. What we have to understand is that God has wrath against sin. I'm going to ask you to stick with me. I know some of you guys have been in more religious places where you've been beat up and abused by imperfection and sin, and so it is a very sensitive subject because of how you've been treated. I hate that for you. Please stick with me. It's going to be uncomfortable, and then it's going to get way better, okay? But we've got to deal with the uncomfortable first. Romans 3, all of sin falls short of the glory of God. Romans 6, the wage, that what we deserve because of sin is death. Romans 6 also tells us that we live as slaves to sin. Romans 1 tells us that when we sin, we are objects of the wrath of God. Romans 5 tells us that in our sin, we are enemies of God. So everybody sins. Because of sin, we deserve death. Because of sin that we all commit, every one of us commits, we are under the wrath of God as enemies of God. That is not good. That's our default position. That's where we begin. Objects of God's wrath who've made ourselves his enemies. And the problem with that church is that God is infinitely holy. And in his holiness, to be holy is to be utterly unlike anyone or anything else. In his holiness, God can't just dismiss sin. He can't just disregard it, ignore it, sweep it under the rug and pretend it didn't happen. For God to dismiss sin would be to violate his own nature and character. For him to just do away with sin and pretend it didn't happen would be for God to violate his own identity. In his holiness, God must punish sin. And since we are all sinners, our response is, uh-oh, And I get that that idea is upsetting because it has been abused and used as a weapon for so long because that's only part of the puzzle. But, but we need to understand that piece because here's the deal. The temptation we have because we feel guilty about sin or we feel shame about sin is to try to cope with that guilt by making sin less. Oh, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Jesus did that whole thing on the cross, so it's just don't even worry about it. The problem with that is when you make less of sin, you make less of the one who saves you from it. When you diminish the impact and the importance and the role and how horrific sin is, you diminish Jesus. Because if sin isn't a big deal, what Jesus did on the cross isn't a big deal. And what kind of God sends his son to die a horrific death over something that isn't a big deal. See, the solution to our problem of guilt and shame is not to make sin lesser, but to see that Jesus is greater. Not make less of sin, but make more of Jesus. 
Because the gospel is, you don't need to live in the guilt and shame of that sin. That part is true, but it is not by diminishing sin, but by elevating Jesus that we get there. See, God, in his infinite holiness, must punish sin. But God, in his mercy, satisfies the demands of his holiness himself. Jesus took on flesh that he could stand in our place and pay our price. Because the message of the gospel is this. We sinned. We rejected God. We rebelled against him. We made ourselves enemies of God and objects of his wrath. We wronged him, and God responded by punishing himself. And what Jesus accomplished on the cross... His propitiatory sacrifice was to turn away and put away the wrath of God against sin on our behalf. What that means, church, is that you and I are not and never will be again under the wrath of God. I want you to imagine this, okay? This picture is God's wrath. And what it is filled with is his wrath against every sin, committed by every person who ever lived from the creation of the universe to his return. Every wrong that was done was poured into this wrath that he has. Jesus on the cross is God pouring out his wrath on him. Every ounce, every droplet, all of God's wrath against sin was poured out onto Jesus in our place. What that means is God has no wrath left for you. Not an ounce, not a droplet, not a residue of wrath that still kind of sits on the pitcher because it didn't get put out. Jesus' death on the cross completely satisfies God's holiness. So he has no wrath left for you if you are in him. What that means is that when we screw up, which we will, because none of us are perfect, right? We are works in progress. When we make mistakes, you don't have to be afraid that God is angry. You don't have to wallow in the guilt of your imperfection because every sin was paid for on the cross. That's the sin that you commit tomorrow, the sin you commit 10 years from now. All of it has been paid, prepaid by Jesus. And this is not an excuse to go on sinning. It is comfort and peace in our imperfection. God has no wrath left for you. Instead, the overabundance of his grace and his mercy. There's no place for guilt. There is no place for fear because all of the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus for your sake and for mine. Verse 18. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he was able to help those who are being tempted. If you've ever been through something traumatic, something painful, something extremely difficult, you know, there's a difference between recognition and understanding. 
When somebody comes to you who has no idea what it is you've been through, who has no ability to really process or experience it, and they try to sympathize and comfort you in your pain, it's meaningful, it's touching, because they recognize your hurt. But it's something entirely different when the person that comes to you understands how you feel because they themselves have felt it. There is a greater comfort that comes from someone understanding. Or if you've lost a, a loved one, someone who is precious and special to you, and someone who hasn't had that experience comes and says, man, that's got to be so hard. I'm so sorry to hear that. Is there it's touching. It is. It's touching. It's not wrong. That's what they can do. But it's not the same as if the person who comes to you has lost someone like that too. Someone who can say, I know what you've been through. I know the hurt that you feel. Because in that comfort, you can see. Because in this, especially when you're in the pain, right? Because when you're in the pain, you're in the pit. And that pit, it feels like you're never going to get out of it. It feels inescapable. And the hurt that you have in trauma and in pain feels like you'll be trapped in it forever. So when you see someone who's been through that as well, and they're not in the pit anymore, not only does it give you comfort, but it gives you hope. Because you go, they got out, which means I can too. There is a difference between recognizing and understanding. And the joy we have in Jesus is he does not just recognize our hardship, he understands it. What greater comfort could we have than knowing the creator of the universe, the one who determines life eternal, understands. He understands what you're going through. Your hurt, your pain. And not just your pain, he understands your temptation. Because he's felt that too. The original audience, they were facing the same temptation that you and I do every single day. To sacrifice, to be unfaithful to the calling that God has placed on their lives in exchange for comfort, peace, and safety. That's what they were living with. That's what we have the choice of every day. Be faithful to what God has called you to do or be comfortable, safe, and peaceful. Jesus faced that same temptation. And he overcame that temptation for you. So what we have to understand is that sin is a liar. And we all struggle with it. We all have times where we give into it. But the lie of sin is that once you've given into it, you are now stuck in it. And everything in the world around us says, yeah, once you've sinned, you're just, you're trapped. Right? You read things and psychologists and all this stuff say, oh, well, you had an addiction. Well, you're always going to be an addict. And you're never going to be free from that. You're never going to escape it. You might be in recovery, but you're never truly going to be free from that because that now defines you. You're stuck in that sin. Everything says, everything reinforces that. Once you've sinned, you're stuck. But the message of the gospel is that you're not stuck. You might sit in that sin. You might struggle in that sin, but you're not stuck in that sin because Jesus has set you free from it. He has set you free from the power that that sin had over you. He set you free from the power of death by his death and resurrection because he was the propitiation. Because, church, the tomb is empty, you are no longer a slave. Because the tomb is empty, you're not a slave to fear. Because the tomb is empty, you're not a slave to death or to doubt. Because the tomb is empty, we have hope and joy in struggles. Because the tomb is empty, we have salvation and life with Jesus. Because the tomb is empty, you are free. Because Jesus conquered the grave. 
He overcame death because no matter how great death is, Jesus is greater. Because the tomb is empty, you will never again be enslaved to the sins and struggles of this world. Because the tomb is empty, you have life. And now, the challenge that's placed before you is what will you do with the life that Jesus died to give you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are no songs that we could sing that are worthy of you. No words that we can use that can capture your glory. But may our lives be our worship. May we live every moment, draw every breath for your kingdom and your glory. May we seek you and pursue you and strive to grow in you every single day that we would become a beacon of light that shines wherever we go for you. And I pray that you would heal us, that you would grow us, that you would draw us closer to yourself. And God, I pray that you would use us to reach those who do not yet know you for your kingdom and your glory. May we be vessels of your grace and your love. May the world around us and the people's lives that we're in, may they reflect you because we're in them. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen.